Okay, um, welcome everyone. Um, we're going to start this session. So welcome to Censorship and Identity, Free Speech for Me, but Not for You. Um, I'm Claire Fox, I'm the Director of the Institute of Ideas. And despite the fact that this um, festival's slogan is Free Speech Allowed, ironically we don't always have lots of discussions on free speech directly. We have, of course, had discussions over the years, over recent years on uh, um, everything from the new hate speech legislation to trigger warnings, safe spaces and so on. But we wanted to take on this issue of free speech today, not from the point of view of saying are you for or against free speech, but to look at some of the new um, challenges um, to free speech and particularly that that's coming at the moment from identity politics. So this panel is not for and against free speech and I, and I know that some of you say, oh well everyone on the panel is for free speech. But if it were the case that everybody's for free speech agreed on everything, um, that would be very positive. But this isn't actually what this is about. What we want to do is to try and work out what the contemporary challenges to free speech look like, uh, particularly in relation to competing identity groups, and particularly in relation to the demand uh, that special rights uh, are, are given to people to, for example, redress historic wrongs or contemporary oppression. Um, and the kind of way that free speech can sometimes be curtailed um, for those who are said to have privilege over those uh, without it and so on. And this has led to some quite extraordinary things happening recently. Linda Bellos, as people will know, was disinvited by Cambridge University uh, um, uh, Student Union recently because of her views on the trans community. Um, but it just seemed rather extraordinary because Linda Bellos as uh, uh, who I, um, I'm sure several people on this panel as well, I've known for many years uh, as a, an outspoken, uh, anti-racist, uh, black lesbian activist, self-proclaimed, uh, can somehow be put into the same camp as kind of reactionary person and the no-platform rules that were developed maybe to keep out fascists from universities are suddenly used against her. You can just see that things have kind of really uh, changed. Just to... Just, uh, um, to, to give a quote uh, from an American university dispute um, uh, where uh, uh, there was an argument about a particular incident. And um, uh, anyway, one of the, the student activists uh, said this, it doesn't matter what you say, uh, said this to one of the professors, it doesn't matter what you say, an entire body of students of colour believe that this incident perpetuates racism. I don't think that white faculty have the jurisdiction to decide what is racist. And in many ways, that's the kind of dispute that we're seeing happening now. You can't challenge someone who claims that their experiential uh, uh, authority uh, gives them the right to decide what racism is, who can be silenced, and so on. And that was a dispute about free speech. So I just wanted to explore this. I want to try and avoid straw men. I want to try and avoid caricatures. Um, as somebody who's written a book about Generation Snowflake, a term which actually I despise, despite the fact that, according to Wikipedia, I popularised it, um, I, 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 I don't want this to be a kind of like whinge about safe spaces um, or a whinge about identity politics, an attempt to actually try and get to grips with this. Because One thing I do know is that those of us who have been involved in free speech uh, for a long time can no longer just simply say... This is a free speech issue and wave a copy of J.S. Mill and hope you can win the argument. It's not going to wash. It doesn't wash. And things are different and we have to, in many ways, uh, appreciate that. So that's what this is all about. 
I'm going to introduce the panel in the order in which they uh, will be speaking. Um, we have uh, sitting next to me uh, Toby Young, who is the co-founder of uh, West London Free School, uh, director of the New Schools Network, associate editor at The Spectator and editor of Spectator Life, author of several books, including What Every Parent Needs to Know, and is uh, generally considered to be an uh, a, a, a general troublemaker is the best way to describe Toby. You can uh, guarantee that whatever he says is going to upset somebody, mainly me. But anyway, um, uh, can we give him a warm welcome, please? Um, we've got uh, Jody Ginsberg sitting next to me. He's the Chief Executive of Index on Censorship. Uh, which, uh, uh, apart from anything, and it does lots of different things, publishes the work of censored writers and artists around the world. Uh, Jodie's a former journalist herself, uh, including uh, at the uh, Reuters London Bureau Chief. They've got a stall downstairs in the Ideas Market with a free speech wall, so you can kind of go and uh, uh, talk to them about their work. And the thing is that Jodie and I have talked often about how we can all just say we're on the side of free speech, but actually it's more complicated than that. So I was really delighted that she agreed to, uh, to join the panel. Can we give her a warm welcome, please? Um, we've got uh, Trevor Phillips over there. He's the founding chair of the Equality and Human Rights uh, Commission, writer and producer who's made some incredibly important, I think, um, TV programmes over uh, recent years, uh, for which he's... Uh, you know, people have said they shouldn't have been broadcast, but actually um, that's all the more reason why they should have been broadcast, and they were insightful at every time. He's a co-founder of Diversity Analytic, uh, Analytics Research, of the Diversity Analytics Research Company, uh, Weber uh, Phillips, and he's a director here at the Barbican, in fact, and vice president of the Royal Television Society. Great to have you here, Trevor. Give him a warm welcome. We've got Professor Frank Ferradi, uh, sociologist and social commentator, author of new, uh, numerous books, the latest of which, uh, Populism and the European Culture Wars, was discussed yesterday and is uh, obviously on sale in the bookshop. Um, pertinent to this debate, he's also the author of On Tolerance and What's Happened to the University uh, about the campus uh, free speech wars, or one of the aspects of it. And he's a well-renowned international speaker and public intellectual and an advisor to the Institute of Ideas. Can we give him a warm welcome, please? Um, and finally, and I'm delighted to have at last persuaded him to come over from the United States to join us, we've got Nick Gillespie. Nick is the editor-in-chief of Reason.com and Reason TV. Uh, he's a star interviewer for, the, uh, uh, for Reason and has interviewed everyone from Ozzy Osbourne and Johnny Rotten uh, to Camille Paglia and Milton Freeman. Uh, he's the co-author of The Declaration of Independence, How Libertarian Politics Can Fix What's Wrong with America. Um, and it's great to have Nick here for a variety of reasons. One, because um, I like his work and uh, Reason's really interesting uh, magazine in America, but also when the Institute of Ideas first set up, we... Uh, rather preposterously organised an event in the new school in New York and, um, and Reason actually were one of our great supporters and that's where I met Nick and he was uh, speaking at the conference and it happened just after 9-11 and uh, obviously everybody said, because it was a week after, you've got to cancel and I remember Nick saying, come on, let's do it and we did it and it was a great success um, so it's great to have him here in London. Can we give him a particular warm <laughs> I've given all the speakers five to seven minutes each. Toby's trying to say it's six to eight. Um, anyway, uh, I've got a stopwatch. I'll, I'll, I'll read quickly. Um, um, anyway, and um, I'm going to be relatively strict. 
You know the format by now. We'll try and get as many of you in for an open conversation when it's finished. I'm not even going to try and get them to argue amongst themselves. I'm just going to go straight out after this because that way I can get them to argue with you and with each other afterwards. Okay, Toby. The only purpose for which power can be rightfully exercised <coughs> over any member of a civilised community against his will is to prevent harm to others. <coughs> so those, I'm sure, most of you will know are the words of J.S. Mill in On Liberty, something I was uh, prohibited from quoting by Claire in our introductory remarks, <laughs> and have come to be known as the harm principle. Now, as I'm sure you'll be aware, one of the most common tactics used by the opponents of free speech is not to deny the harm principle, but to invoke it. Words are deeds, and as such, are capable or as capable of causing harm as actions. I want to do, distinguish between two forms this argument takes. Until recently, the form it most commonly took was to claim that exposure to certain words or images, plays, films, books, would di directly cause certain people to engage in harmful behaviour. Uh, more recently, though, this argument's taken a new twist, and it's the claim that certain forms of expression, particularly unorthodox centre-right opinions, such as those possessed by people like me, are capable of causing actual harm to some of the people exposed to them. So these opponents of free speech are not claiming that the view in question or book or film or artwork will cause people to harm themselves or others, but that mere exposure to it is in itself a form of harm. Now, that usually takes the form of finding the view in question offensive, and causing offence is presented as a species of harm. But it takes other forms, too. The claim that such and such a view, a book by a dead white European male in an English literature curriculum that hasn't yet benefited from decolonisation, for instance, is triggering or disempowering or is damaging to uh, students' mental health or just straightforwardly makes people feel physically sick. Uh, a recent example of this was the offer by the University of California, Berkeley, of free counselling to any students who were, sorry, Berkeley, of free counselling to any students who were adversely affected by the words of Ben Shapiro, a right of centre commentator who'd been invited to speak on campus. That is, they offered free counselling. Um, they didn't ban him from speaking, but they did offer free counselling to any students that happened to be triggered even by his presence on campus. So um, no need for American college students to engage in cultural appropriation when they go to Halloween parties next week. If they want to really scare people, they just need to dress up as Ben Shapiro, the most scariest person that can appear on an American campus. Now, as far as I'm aware, no American university has offered free counselling for students triggered by being exposed to left-wing viewpoints, which is just as well since, according to a study carried out by the Econ Journal Watch in 2016, which looked at the voter registration of faculty members of 40 leading U.S. universities, Democrats outnumber Republicans on U.S. university faculties by an average of 11.5 to 1. In psychology faculties, it's 17.4 17 to 1. And in history, the ratio is 33.5 to 1. Uh, if left-wing views were as harmful to students' uh, mental health as right-wing views, the counselors of American universities would have their hands pretty full. Um, much has been written about why this hypothesis, why certain forms of expression cause actual harm to those exposed to them, is wrong-headed, a perversion of the harm principle as articulated by Mill. Any view, however anodyne, is bound to cause offence to someone somewhere. People's fixed ideas should be challenged, however discomforting they find that experience, particularly in universities, etc., etc. And I don't want to dwell on those arguments here. I'm sure, I hope the other speakers will. But I do want to make one point, which is the that this distortion of the harm principle requires its adherents to make completely implausible claims about the fragility 
uh, of the groups they're seeking to protect from exposure to unorthodox views or opinions, whether women, Muslims, people of color, the differently abled, etc. Take women. So left-wing feminists, in an effort to silence anyone who perpetuates gender stereotypes, often appeal to the very gender stereotypes they're purporting to challenge. So it's a gender stereotype to claim women are more emotional than men, but apparently challenging feminist orthodoxy is dangerous because it might make women feel violently sick. Um, and if you think that's an exaggeration, that was exactly the argument used by Professor Nancy Hopkins at MIT to silence Larry Summers, then the president of Harvard, who found himself embroiled in a scandal when he opined about why there were fewer tenured female professors in STEM subjects than male professors. Professor Hopkins said she couldn't listen to any more of Larry Summers' views because those views were making her physically ill. So some feminists have found themselves being silenced now, often by opponents, using the very same arguments. So Germaine Greer, Linda Bellos, whom Claire mentioned, Julie Blindle, uh, Bindle have all been no-platformed, uh, uh, but for purportedly being transphobic, often on the grounds that their words, if they are allowed to speak at university campuses, uh, might make trans students feel threatened and in some cases physically sick. One more example before I stop, which is university students, a group the modern-day censors are particularly keen to protect from harmful speech. Very delicate creatures, apparently. A recent survey by The Tab, an online student publication involving 11,000 students across the UK, found that uh, uh, drug-taking amongst this uh, extremely, exceedingly delicate uh, uh, demographic was uh, quite, quite pervasive, with the University of West England topping the table, where three-quarters of students at UWE say they take MDMA at least once a month. The national average for students saying they take MDMA at least once a month is 64%, slightly lower than it is for ketamine, which is 33%. So the number of students saying they take cocaine at least once a month is 49% gives a new meaning to the word snowflakes. Um, <laughs> Two-thirds of Cambridge students say they smoke cannabis at least once a month, and Sussex is top of the stoner league table, with 86% saying they regularly smoke wacky-backy. Needless to say, these universities, those universities with the highest percentage of students regularly using drugs, UWE, Manchester, Leeds, Sheffield, Sussex, these are at the top of the drug-taking league table, which presumably the tab publishes so students can choose to go to those universities where the most drugs are taken. Uh, they're all red-flagged in Spiked Online's free speech university rankings. At UWE, for instance, and remember, UWE students actually top the league table for drug use across the board. Transphobic speech is totally prohibited, uh, needlessly provocative speech is restricted, and the UWE Student Union bans sexist, racist, and homophobic views as part of its safer spaces policy and limits speech which may cause offence, quote-unquote. So it's okay for 45% of UWE students to regularly take ketamine, a drug developed for the sedation of patients in intensive care, but not to be exposed to the views of, say, Katie Hopkins. Uh, now... If, I mean, I'm sorry, but if university students are robust enough to withstand this almighty blizzard of illegal drugs, then they're strong enough to cope with having their views challenged from time to time. And if the PC thought police are worried about their deteriorating mental health, perhaps they should focus their efforts on reducing their drug intake rather than reducing uh, banning centre-right speakers from campus. Thank you. That was very good. That's what's called the warm-up act. <laughs> um, okay, uh, thank you very much, Toby. Um, 
bravura performance and some of those things that we have to unpick because um, we actually have to now work out how to deal with it. But anyway, Jodie. Right. So, I want to talk about why free speech is important. And for me, one of the main elements of why I think free speech is so important is it enables us to talk about injustice. So, it's, it's worth talking about the injustice uh, of this afternoon, where I had an entire five minutes prepared on talking about the elision between harm and offence, which Toby Young has just taken, despite an agreement <laughs> in advance that on, on the various subjects that we would talk about. So I'm just going to read you what Toby said he would talk about. <laughs> I want to say something about why free speech has never enjoyed much support within the postmodernist tradition and explore the paradox of why moral and epistemological relativists are so intolerant of dissent. Brackets. Because it's a new religion, obviously. I wrote that I would talk about the elision between offence and harm and how they were used interchangeably. The idea of speech as a kind of violence. I can only presume that Toby misread my part as the bit that he was supposed to read. I thought yours was better, Jody, sorry. <laughs> So, <laughs> instead I'm going to talk about why it's problematic that we allied this idea of offence and harm. And that's if we leave the individual to adjudicate what is harm, then free speech is in considerable danger. The individual, in effect, becomes the sole arbiter of what is and is what is not acceptable speech from other people. And in that way, we all become mini-censors. Um, and if you want some examples of how this works and, and how this becomes utterly ridiculous and, and divorced from the kinds of things that people are trying to do in order to protect other people, think about this example. In 2016, the Asian American Student Association at Brandeis University tried to raise awareness of what is known as microaggressions. It's a horrible term and we might come on to it. Uh, microaggressions against Asians in the university with an installation on the steps of an, of an academic hall. And it gave examples of microaggressions like, aren't you supposed to be good at math? And I'm colorblind, I don't see race. This, remember, was the Asian American Student Association trying to raise awareness of microaggressions against Asians. A backlash arose against this installation from other Asian Americans at the university who argued the display itself was a microaggression. And as a result, the installation was removed and the president of the association wrote an email to the entire student body to apologise. This is the kind of circular motion we get into in which everybody's speech gets censored because somebody decides that that is offensive and not just offensive, but as Toby alluded to, uh, harmful. Words have power. If we didn't agree that, I don't think there would be 200 plus people sitting in here listening to this conversation. If we didn't think words had power and indeed the capacity to wound, and again, I don't think we'd be sitting here trying to have the debate. But we do need to get away, I think, from the idea that in order to protect us from the potential of words to cause pain, that we need to stop the words from themselves or the people themselves from uttering them, rather than concentrating on finding ways to challenge those words. And I think that's very much where we need to take this discussion. Let's stop focusing on the words we need to censor, the people we need to censor, and the way to challenge ideas that we don't like. And I think we've become less successful at finding ways to do that. Because after all, what protects others' rights to say 
others' rights to say things that you find offensive, including Toby's right to take my entire speech this afternoon uh, and use it, uh, is also what protects all of our rights to say that we object to them. Okay, that's great, Jodie. I'm actually going to come back to you on quite a number of those things because I want to. Uh, that's exactly the kind of territory that I want to kind of look at. Um, so, Trevor, your th initial thoughts, please. I'm sitting here feeling a little guilty. Um, back in 1973, I suspect before most people in this audience were born, um, at Exeter University, um, the NUS had its annual conference, and this skinny black kid with an afro steps up to move uh, a motion which is about overseas students' fees and the terrible injustice of it and racism and <laughs> National Front on Campus and so on. And what had happened the evening before is that in the usual horse trading over resolutions, uh, they had inserted a clause which said that there should be no platform for racists. And this kid, who thought, frankly, that was really marginal to the whole thing, Moved it, fantastic success, start of an awful career, but actually it has come back to haunt us, whatever it is now, 45 years later. When we moved that, I mean, besides the fact that I did actually have hair at that time, <laughs> this is the most significant difference for me, um, what we were really trying to deal with was the uh, presence on British campuses of an overtly racist and violent political party, the National Front. My own college, Imperial College, was the home university of their youth organization, organizer, a man called Stephen Nolan. So that was a context in which all of that took place. You can imagine, therefore, it comes as a surprise to me that now what was a practical answer to a practical point is now being discussed at a level which, frankly, is way above my intellectual and pay grade. Our job was to protect some students who faced what I would regard as real harm, uh, not uh, to worry about their offence. Now, there's another side to this which I think has emerged since, and I just want to start by saying this, because I want to go and talk about some other things. If you want to deal with free speech, if you want to think about this as a matter of principle, to me there is only one central point here when it comes to the question of protection of minority groups. What we have learned in the last 150 years is that ultimately freedom of expression is the last and only defense of the minority in any society. When they have taken away everything else from you, everything else from you, the last thing they can take away is your voice. That was true about Sojourner Truth. It was true about the slaves in the Caribbean. It was true about the Jews in Europe. People can take, they can take everything away from you. What they cannot do, ultimately, unless physically, <coughs> physically they obliterate you, is take away your ability to express your pain, anger, frustration. So, the defense of free speech on the grounds that uh, it is somehow an offense to minorities 
simply flies in the face of every piece of human experience. And actually, what I would myself say to all of those people who think they're defending me by telling people they may not say this or that, shut up. Shut up. Because, because in the end, what happens is, I am the one who is denied. I am the one who's going to be denied. So let me get my view about that clear. But I also want to put this debate in perspective. Um, Claire said a bit about what I do now. Um, actually, I do quite a lot of other things uh, which are completely unconnected to politics, thank Christ. Um, and here are some of the things I want the higher education sector to be worrying about. I am president of the John Lewis Partnership. I, uh, you know, I lead a big retailer. Uh, what I worry about when I wake up is the vicious competitive market providing decent quality food and the massive impact of technology on 84,000 partners, the million jobs that are going to disappear uh, because of technology over the next 10 years. I chair a big adult education charity, the WEA, and I think about the two million hours of adult education we provide, and I know the biggest group of our students who are new immigrants learning English generally aren't getting their knickers in a twist about what Jermaine Greer or Michael Goh said. They don't give a shit. As chair of a big think tank in the United States, I worry about the racial divide in American society that produced Trump. He did not cause it. He is a symptom of it. And what we do about it in big companies, that is the big worry. And as myself, I'm thinking now about the incredible reach of tech giants, Amazon, Google, Apple, Facebook, and Twitter. So identity questions matter more than they did, but they don't matter that much against these kinds of challenges. Uh, I think that, for myself, some of these controversies are simple admission of impotence in politics. The fact is that politicians have relatively little impact or capacity to deal with the kinds of things I've just talked about. Uh, so what they want to do is occupy themselves with stuff that they think they might be able to have an impact on by telling people what to do and what not to do. When I was a kid, you had to go to the government to get a phone, and the government will tell you when you could get a phone. Uh, the amount of money you could walk out of the country with on holidays set by ministers. That's not true any longer. I think a lot of this is displacement activity. Uh, and as far as the universities are concerned, yeah, let me come to that point. All I can say is the authorities worrying about all of this is pathetic. It is absolutely pathetic. Any black student who gets Oxford or Cambridge has gone through many, many more things than the microaggressions that people want to defend them from. Uh, and by the way, if you want to know what, how groupthink ends up, go and see The Death of Stalin in the cinema across, uh, across the road. Um, the last thing I want to say is this. Very specifically, the McPherson uh, inquiry redefined hate crime so that anybody who defines something as a hate crime uh, could report it. Now, is this, is this the thing that we... The, the, the reasons given for concern about this is the rise in hate crime. Let me just give you some numbers. The biggest category of hate crime is 50,000 uh, a year. Reported include, those are reported crimes, including verbal, graffiti, all sorts of things, online abuse. Let's assume that there's underreporting by 100%, so there's 100,000 of those crimes a year. There are 7 million of adults of color in this country, which means, assuming all of those incidents were white or non-white, each one happens to a different person, it means that I stand a 1 in 70 chance 
of encountering one of these things each year, or frankly, once in my lifetime. Once in my lifetime. Let me just get, make clear. We are not snowflakes. We are not snowflakes. We do not need this kind of nonsense to defend us. What we need are people to worry about whether we're getting equal access to jobs, whether we are getting into universities at the same rate as other people, and whether we're getting jobs when we come out in the same rate. And there's a cost to all of this. And this is the last thing I want to say, uh, Claire. For women, the row about transgender is now beginning to rob women of the right to state their, identi state their identity as women. It's shocking. It's absolutely shocking. And when it comes to race, one of the worst things that's happened in the last 15 years has been the controversy over harm, supposedly, uh, about conversation about race. It has meant that certain research projects have essentially become unfundable. And one of those is about a drug called Bidal, which was shown to uh, work more effectively for African-Americans than for others. Bidal had to be withdrawn because of the controversy about having a race-specific drug. So these controversies, which everybody entertains themselves with, are not cost-free. They are disastrous. Uh, that, that was really uh, excellent, Trevor, and also gives us, I think that just, that sense of the history is very important, but also that sense of the wider perspective about priorities, I think, is, uh, is hugely valuable as well to this discussion. Um, okay, Frank, your thoughts, please. Uh, yeah, just to go down memory lane a little bit, about two years after the NUS passed No Platform, I wrote a little pamphlet called Under a National Flag, which was a critique of the idea of No Platform. I remember being phenomenally unpopular when I wrote it. And ever since then, I've been a fighter of lost causes. That's kind of my claim to fame. And in many ways, when I wrote uh, this little pamphlet, I never imagined how what began as a, a very specific form of censorship would gradually mutate into something that is almost boundless in the way that it kind of uh, works itself out. And one of the things I've been struggling with, in fact, I decided to write a book on this next year when I have a bit of time. Anybody wants to finance it, see me afterwards. Is how do we explain a phenomenon that's quite unprecedented in modern history, which is when you have a kind of censorship but without any project attached to it. In other words, censorship is usually a state policy. You have political movements that want to censor certain ideas. You have religious movements who want to censor heresy. You have movements that want to censor subversion. But what we have here is a kind of a form of censorship that isn't <coughs> self-consciously censoring, but is nevertheless far more insidious in many ways precisely because it is unacknowledged and it is silent and presents itself very often as the promoter of free speech, as a promoter of giving voice to people to say things that in the absence of censorship they could never express. I mean, how do we explain that? And... I actually do go back to the 1970s and even before that because if you look at the way that history has evolved, you will find that censorship, but particularly identity politics driven censorship, has undergone some very important changes. And I think it's really wrong. You know, I was in Australia recently, in America recently. A lot of people said, oh, it's the left that's promoting this, oh, it's the cultural Marxists that are promoting it. I always tell them, 
If you go on a campus anywhere in Britain, you will find that cultural Marxists are conspicuous by their absence. I, mean, I haven't seen one for a very, very long time. And there really isn't that kind of left-wing uh, sort of dynamic behind it. There's something else that's going on. And it seems to me that what has happened is that uh, three important uh, sort, of, uh, sort of phenomena have kicked in that alters the meaning of identity politics and alters the meaning of the kind of censoring impulse that we have. And the first one began in the United States in the, in the early 1970s, and it was an interesting book that was written uh, sort of uh, ab uh, at the time, which uh, was already noticed, but which became increasingly more influential. And that was a book about victims. And the argument was that you had to believe the victim, that uh, you couldn't possibly deny what a, a victim had said, because if you're doing that, then what you're doing is you're committing secondary victimization. And the minute you don't uh, acknowledge or validate what you hear, then, uh, and you don't believe, then if so facto, by definition, you're violating that person's very persona. You're kind of annihilating their, their kind of identity. And if you look at the whole history since 1970s, the argument of having to believe, no choice but to believe, has reappeared time and time again. Do you remember the arguments in the 80s about believing the children? That children never lie. I don't know what world you live in. You know, they, uh, because in my world, children lie you know, sort of serially and all the time. But all of a sudden, children never lie. And anybody that questions the narrative of a child was seen as being either uh, a denial of pedophilia or alternatively, in some shape or form, uh, complicit in the kind of oppression that was occurring. So basically, what I want to suggest is the, the first important uh, uh, development that has occurred that was really unnoticed with the believe the victim argument is that, that there can only be one version of events. Right? There can only be one version of events. There cannot be a counter-narrative. We cannot have a debate about this. There is only one version of events. Uh, it might not be uh, uh, in all situations, but in, in a growing number of instances, more and more people are claiming that their version of events monopolizes the, the sphere within which we are acting. And that's a very important and very interesting development that's been assimilated by society unthinkingly and very rarely contested. Very few people have actually been there to contest that particular argument. The second important development that, that occurs in relation to this is that um, identity politics, uh, as it emerged, gradually came to the conclusion that identity groups must have a patent, must monopolize the voice. In other words, there are, there are certain things that can only be said by certain kinds of people. There are certain claims that can only be made by people who've experienced it. In other words, there was an argument that you know, there is even a feminist epistemology, that a woman's way of knowledge, knowing is very different than mine or Nick's, or an African person's way of knowing, an African epistemology. The insights that you get is very different than a European one. And there's a, a large number of uh, variations of this. And basically, what that means is that there are a lot of issues on which a woman's opinion counts either for more than anybody else's, or it's the only opinion that counts. And a disabled person's opinion on those issues is the only one that's valid, because they have a patent. Their experience gives them a patent on that particular sphere of, of, of experience. And in that way, what, what you have is the kind of situation where uh, language, but also experience, becomes increasingly segregated. And you have a parallel universe being created, if so facto, by this particular process. 
The third important development, that's a, a more recent one, is that the very criticism of identity is not constituted as a cultural crime. In other words, if I question your identity, or if I question your claim to a particular identity, or if we argue about the issues that you raised, then what I'm criticizing is not what you're saying, not your view of the position of women in society, not your view of race or microaggression. What I'm criticizing is you. In other words, there is no longer a distinction between the person and the argument. And therefore, if I argue with you, I'm not arguing with you about ideas. This is what those students are saying on campuses. I'm actually calling your, you know, your existence into question. It represents the annihilation of who you are. And that's what people are saying when they're saying that, you know, how, can you, how dare you say that? You know, how dare you attack me? And I actually think that the points that Toby was raising misses one little point, which is that a lot of these people actually feel this very, very profoundly. I think that's the irony. But people do not make up the fact that they feel annihilated. They take it very, very personally and actually think that they're being traumatized. And they are probably traumatized because that's what happens when you think along those lines. So it seems to me that under these circumstances, what we have is a situation where the very development, the cultural developments that have kicked in in the last 20 or 30 years have created a situation where what is important is, is not the speech, not the lack of, uh, of, of free speech, but the cultural underpinnings of that, which even, uh, even people who believe in free speech are very rarely questioning. They're, they're assimilated. Many of the arguments that underpin this illiberal moment that exists within our society, and therefore, what we have to really deal with are these underlying cultural trends, which in general are, are very rarely brought to the surface and very rarely criticized. Thank okay, you. Uh, thanks, Frank. And I think some of those underlying cultural trends are things that we've been exploring over the last two days here um, um, in this under the sessions. But I definitely want to focus in on them uh, uh, in the conversation. Um, Nick, your thoughts, please. Uh, thank you. And uh, I especially want to thank Frank for uh, not counting me as a woman because I grew up in a household where I was constantly being called a pussy. So it's good to be uh, identified on the male side of the uh, ledger. I'm also, uh, when I have to admit to having like probably a lot of you gone into a post-lunch coma, especially after Toby started talking about all of the drugs being taken in college. <laughs> I think we should have the Battle of Ideas at uh, Cambridge or West England College, was it, next time? Uh, and it's also very strange that taking drugs would keep people from talking. In my experience, I get a lot more loquacious, but such as it is. I, you know, I, I mentioned colleges uh, partly because I spent a lot of time on colleges. I went all the way through grad school, that type of stuff. Uh, in America, uh, and I, you know, I'm making no claim to being Ben Franklin here, but um, it, in America, I think we've come to the conclusion that colleges are not a serious place anymore, which we, I don't think anybody in the creative arts, I don't think anybody in uh, technology in business and in, in the business of creating interesting worlds uh, is focused that much on colleges anymore because they're just kind of useless cesspools uh, that are either run by or for children. Um, and I, I refuse to think, and I'll come back to this because I actually think as much as free speech is under attack, it is always under attack. We actually live in the greatest moment for free speech and free expression ever. Uh, in, in my lifetime, at the very least. I won't say all of human history, although as far as I'm concerned, my life and human history are completely uh, <laughs> contingent. 
uh, or uh, overlap personally. Uh, what I want to talk about here, and I'll come back to the college question, but you know, obviously censors no longer present themselves as censors. Uh, they're doing something else because nobody really is, is being censorious openly. And I, what I want to discuss are some of the different identities who feel aggrieved that are moving to, I think, in much more radical and definitive ways, shut down speech they don't like in a way that really uh, harms society and the possibility of innovation and freedom. Uh, and to that end, I want to talk about uh, in 2015 on the, the website that I edit, reason.com, I posted something in the wake of the uh, sentencing of Ross Ulbricht, who had created a, uh, a dark web or a deep website called Silk Road, where you could buy or sell virtually anything, including a lot of illegal drugs. He was finally sentenced, uh, and the judge uh, who was sentencing him didn't basically went off on a jag about how dare he think, because he had read Ayn Rand as a child or something, that he could create a world where people would be free to come together and buy and sell whatever they wanted. What a piece of shit he was. Went on and on, and I wrote a commentary about that. Some of our commenters said things about a federal judge uh, uh, as awful as saying that, um, you know, she should be fed into a wood chipper, like in the movie Fargo. Um, other people said, I hope that there is a special place reserved in hell for her. Uh, we were subpoenaed for commenter information uh, by the federal government. Uh, and then uh, where we were for six commenters, and they said that you need to uh, turn over all of the material you have about them, identifying because we're afraid they're going to kill this judge, uh, that they represented true threats. We got in touch with the commenters before they put a gag order on us where we couldn't tell anybody, even the people whose information we were turning over, uh, you know, what they wanted to do, um, so they knew about it, but then we had a gag order put on us. Um, and the, uh, it was such a true threat, the uh, government was so worried that these people were going to go after all of whom's information was essentially publicly available, that they gave us a week to comply with this, even though they were terrified that these people were going to go rent a wood chipper and drive across the country and try and feed this judge into it. Um, I mean, it was a, it's classic chilling effect, both on the part of a media organization and as well as individual actors. Um, and um, that, you know, that's one form, and it was because it was a federal judge, and there's a standing uh, grand jury, uh, a, a standing star chamber in uh, most uh, district courts, uh, federal district courts in America, where they can just bring, it's open-ended, and they can just bring charges against all sorts of people and subpoena all sorts of information, place gag orders. So that's one identity. Uh, you know, federal judges should be treated differently than you or me. Um, political activists, political actors in the United States, um, speech, uh, the United States in many ways was founded upon anonymous speech. Uh, certainly the Constitution that we live under now was adopted through uh, 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 basically champion in anonymous essays that led to its passage. Um, political speech is incredibly tightly regulated in the U.S. where you have to uh, uh, disclose who donors are, where you can spend money, things like that. Millions of dollars in fines at the federal and state level are constantly being levied against people, essentially to punish them for acting against the status quo or in ways that federal election committees or state level election committees. That's another identity. So we're supposed to have a First Amendment that defends specifically political speech um, and yet we're constantly being regulated and fined, sometimes to the point of bankruptcy, for failing to file the right forms. Um, in 2014, a graffiti artist in Brooklyn was charged uh, for, not for vandalism, she was a graffiti artist, so she was vandalizing in the sense she was, uh, you know, spray painting on buildings that she didn't own or property she didn't have permission to. 
uh, but she was uh, charged with criminal mischief as a hate crime for spray painting slogans like Nazis equal NYPD and uh, this one, which is pretty brutal, uh, NYPD pick on innocence. Um, she was attacked because the police have a, have a protected identity. They're snowflakes in this case, and this happens quite a bit. Uh, the pushback against Black Lives Matter, whatever people might think about that, a movement that is devote, devoted to talking about police abuse of minorities, particularly blacks. There are groups called Blue Lives Matter, as well as very powerful police unions uh, that push back on all sorts of stuff and have intensifiers uh, in the sentencing process or in the charging process if you kill a cop rather than you know, a regular person. Uh, and then the last example I'll give, because these are identities that uh, we don't normally think about as feeling aggrieved or under threat. <clears throat> uh, uh, scientific expertise, the FDA, which regulates medical devices and a lot of uh, prescription drugs and other things in the US, stopped a group uh, called 23andMe, which does a cheap genomic sequencing for you in 2013 from sharing information about genetic markers uh, that may or may not predispose you to certain types of genetic problems like Alzheimer's or diseases that are uh, uh, like Alzheimer's or Huntington's. Um, it was loosened up a little bit in 2017, but still smaller than before. This is a, a real restriction on speech that doesn't quite get the same outrage uh, as a campus event. Uh, in North Carolina, dietitians, you have to be a registered dietitian to talk about uh, you know, what people can eat. Um, so these are some of the other identities, which I think because they come with the power of the government uh, to, to force people to shut up or to go to jail or to have time, it's a big problem. I want to leave with two quick points. Quick, 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 quick. Okay, obviously we can't let the most aggrieved upon, among us dictate what, uh, you know, what is uh, allowable or unallowable speech, but we also need to recognize a way to bring them into the conversation. And I'll go back to colleges here. Milo Yiannopoulos' college tour, his, uh, what was the... Uh, the faggot, uh, dangerous faggot dangerous tour. Um, you know, it was, it was challenged at a lot of campuses. I would argue there was no intellectual content. Having it at a college, he was trolling people. If we believe in free speech, and I think Milo should have as much free speech, and I think he should be on Twitter and all of that kind of shit, but he's, he and I think people who defend free speech should be critiquing him. This is a guy who goes around on college campuses and calls women fat cunts. Um, you know, as a taxpayer, I'm kind of aggrieved by, you know, that I'm paying for that. But we need, to, we need to call out stupid speech that is merely trying to say, oh, political correctness is destroying speech. That's, that's part of our job as free speech activists, to be seriously engaged with stupidity on the right, left, or anywhere we find it. And then to go back to a, a very quick moment of optimism, if the answer to bad speech is more speech, we're in an extremely great position here. I know as the, as the publisher of an alternative website whose ideology is not overwhelmingly popular, uh, things have gotten better and better over the past 20 years, okay. even as political correctness has tried to shut down more and more discourse. Okay, thank you. Um, okay, thank, uh, thanks, Nick. Um, and uh, certainly on this sort of um, different identities, that's something to explore, to say to the audience. I, I think that one of the things is that with, with the kind of protected identity right to speak and the right to silence others, then there's more and more people queuing up to, to say, I am part of a protected identity. And you see that in particular. And obviously we've sort of noted, 
well, it's been noted that there's a kind of, like the white working class now kind of are used in that way, and that's sometimes the way some of the, the Milo troll followers kind of present themselves as the victims as well, and so on and so forth. So it's kind of a dangerous spiralling game as well. Right, I, 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 as I've um, indicated, I do want this to be looking at the identity politics question. I do know that, you know, the, the truth of the matter is, is that most people in society... Um, um, outside, or you know, in broader society, a lot of people would be horrified um, at the idea that there should just be free speech, no ifs, no buts. And there's lots of sympathy with identity politics as well. Uh, it's a major trend. So you know, feel free to argue back, and/or to kind of raise problems or issues as you want, rather than just kind of anecdotes of you know daft you know, censorious things that are happening on campus because we'll be here all day and we won't get anywhere. Um, so um, anyone want to kind of ask a question or speak? Okay, good. Um, I agree with what a lot of the panellists have said in relation to free speech and returning to the identity issue. Don't for a moment think that the <coughs> repression of free speech on the ground of identity and the assertion that people of a particular identity, um, insofar as that's meaningful, can't make a particular point is merely misguided. It is a deliberately dishonest and repressive means of suppressing the expression of opposing views. It is a means of repressing dissent. And the thing that it's a means of repressing dissent of is the um, forwarding of extremist sectarian politics that are intended to forward the interests of a limited subset of the population against the, po the interests of the population as a whole. And how do we know this? Uh, it's because... First of all, it's almost never to be invoked precisely in response to arguments against those kinds of extremist politics. And secondly, because it is one of a canon of well-known forms of um, dishonest debate. Um, I have a blog um, which says, it has a, a post, quick, quick. Um, 10 dishonest debating techniques and how to spot them. This is one of them. Um, there are nine others. But so it, it's, it's, it is a part of a means of cynically suppressing um, dissent from a political viewpoint and trying to dominate the political conversation by force, fear and fraud. Yeah, go on. Hello. Um, thank you, everyone. Um, some absolutely brilliant points here, and I was listening very intently. I mean, I, Trevor is spot on. I think with the rise of identity politics, if you like, what we've seen is the transition of sort of defending individuals from real harm to um, a defense of um, particular ideas. And I think, Frank, Ferendi, you touched on this as well, that when people are criticized about ideas that they hold, for whatever reason, um, they <coughs> seem to have, they, they, uh, they find that their feelings are hurt because ideas that they hold are criticized. So by logical <coughs> extension, it seems that for certain people, certain groups of people, uh, I think the, the ideas are almost uh, an emotional extension of themselves. So, for example, um, if... Very quick, very quick. If, if, so, if the final... If one were to <coughs> criticise uh, Islam, um, one might be accused of Islamophobia uh, or, you know, attacking Muslims, but one is attacking the actual ideas uh, within Islam itself rather than um, the, the individuals themselves. And there's a very clear and very important distinction, but I think it's a very relevant um, 
it's a very relevant concern at the moment. Okay, thank you. There was, uh, I saw recently online there was this um, a video of an American student or students um, uh, berating one of their lecturers and, and one of the um, female students in particular um, uh, struck me and she kept screaming at him over and over, you are what you say, you are what you say. And it, strikes me, it struck me that this is something that's quite fundamental to identity politics, that um, if you are what you say, if I am what I say, then if you disagree with me, you're not just agreeing what I say, you're disagreeing with who I am and disagreeing with my being. So if you um, uh, attack my ideas, you are actually attacking my, my being. Okay. And just like that, um, do you agree that you are what you say? Okay, thank you. Um, so, yeah. Okay. Um, I just want to ask a quick question about informal censorship. Because when you protest the state interfering in what you can say, that's an easier free speech protest because it's easier to identify your target. Whereas when you protest the fact that people are calling for safe spaces or you're protesting the fact that people want to make certain words highly stigmatized, that's harder. Because it seems like what you're protesting is their speech creating an etiquette which stigmatizes you for saying something they don't want to hear. But if you then say, I'm outraged at you for asking for the safe space, you know, shut up because your etiquette demands are harming me, then they can turn around and say, but you're just trying to stigmatize me, you're informally censoring me. So how do we yeah. handle this problem of informal censorship, which is conceptually more difficult to pin down than state censorship of language or symbolic expressions of something unacceptable? Okay, thank you. Hi, um, I wanted to draw attention to a phenomenon which the panel haven't mentioned, but which I think is really important. And this is desinformatia um, by Russian troll farms. Um, David Grimes wrote an excellent piece in The Guardian a couple of months ago about how Russian desinformatia was responsible for a myth about AIDS, suggesting that it was a leaked virus from a US lab. And this caused real harm, in, particularly in South Africa, because people then didn't accept the uh, conventional medical advice about AIDS, refused treatment, and so on. So it caused real harm, and it eventually came back to bite the Russians when they got the their own AIDS problem, and they've fessed up to this disinformation campaign. But we know that Russian trolls have infiltrated the Black Lives Matters protests to some degree. They've um, been running some of the accounts, and they've actually been funding some of the campaigns. So we really do need to think very carefully about who are the international mischief makers who are stirring up some of this stuff, uh, and who may be, not completely, but partly behind it. Thank okay, you. Okay, thank you. Um, yes. Uh, thank you guys for coming. Uh, since this is the panel on free speech, I want to invite you guys to answer this question as controversially as you possibly can and would like for, the, for our sake. Um, I, my question is very simple, which is just, uh, do you think that women and minorities deserve a special microphone, uh, like a disproportionate voice or like any preference? Because to do so is to sort of admit that there's a fundamental difference, but to deny it is to say maybe there isn't. Just curious if you would explore that. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's a very good question, but, but because that's actually the main argument, uh, uh, certainly an argument that's being used. I mean, I kind of, in the blurb, I kind of make the point that, you know, if you say, this is squeezing out, you know, or, you know, kind of like the shut up, you're a white man, you know, you say, well, you know, you've had privilege for a long time. This is our chance now to speak out, and we want you to listen. And therefore, there should be disproportionate time given to people. Um, because of the oppression, both historically and contemporaneously. That's one of the ways that this happens, and it's accepted by lots of people as a positive gain. So, um, But anyone want to pick up anything? Uh, who wants to start? Uh, yeah. Okay, uh, quick. I'm not going to answer all of them, but um, 
Identity politics deliberately dishonest. I think there's a kind of you know, huge conspiracy theory around that. I think there are people deliberately using some of these movements to, to shut others up. But I think some people genuinely believe that by trying to censor certain kinds of speech, they're protecting communities. Trevor alluded to it. And I, and I think that's almost more worrying than the deliberately dishonest element. I think the informal censorship question is a really interesting one because obviously... We encourage people, as free speech activists, I think, to protest, to speak up about the ideas and the views that they think are problematic. But the problem comes when you're actively trying to prevent those people from speaking at all, rather than speaking out about why you think those views are problematic. And I think that's what we need to focus on, is not can you protest against them, but should you be shutting them down altogether? Um, this question about disinformation and real harm, I think, is something important and we don't discuss enough. But ultimately, I think we're often trying to find the wrong solution to this problem, which is let's censor that information and therefore um, it won't cause harm. Well, in fact, all that does is push it underground. It's much better that we're vocal um, when we're talking about the reasons why the alternative explanations, the factual true explanations, are the right ones rather than creating an environment in which conspiracy theories can flourish. And finally, special microphone. Well, here I am. I'm going to now spend the next 20 minutes owning this microphone as a woman uh, to create my special microphone. No, I don't think there should be special microphones, but I do think we don't discuss enough creative and, and interesting ways to raise different voices. The question isn't let's ban Jermaine Greer from speaking. The question, much more importantly, is who are we inviting to speak? Are we inviting the right people? Are we even the right panel to be discussing this bloody topic? You know, let's have a discussion about whether we're getting the right kinds of people, inviting different voices, finding ways to celebrate them. Do we have financial models that allow that? Instead of having a long, drawn-out discussion about who gets banned and who doesn't get banned, let's be much more critical about who's getting to speak in the first place. Okay, could, thank I, uh, you. could I, uh, Claire, can I follow up real quickly on that? No, Toby first, then you. <sighs> Thanks, God. Um, but does he get eight minutes again? I'll, sh <laughs> I'll try and keep you it brief. You spoke longer than anyone, Nick. <laughs> well, I, I'm American. Yes. <laughs> I'm the hegemon. And he's the on hegemon. drugs. Um, uh, Careful, I, I might to... sneeze and <laughs> the rest of you will catch a cold. I wanted to um, just tease out... Uh, the connection between identity politics and the uh, lack of belief in free speech and the attack on free speech. And I think it, it goes something like this, that if you are an identitarian, if you're part of that postmodernist tradition, um, you believe that people are wholly defined by whatever category of identity they happen to belong to. Um, and that those those sources of your identity, those categories can't be transcended and that they are just an expression of power and uh, the relationship between different identity groups is uh, one of typically um, uh, the oppressed to the oppressor. And if you believe that people can't transcend uh, those categories of identity, 
um, then what is really the point of different groups trying to communicate with each other? All they'll ever be doing will be trying to articulate whatever the ideological framework their various identity categories that intersect have saddled them with. And there isn't any point in a free exchange of ideas. It's only if you believe that people are more than the sum of those various arbitrary identities, that they can transcend them and come together in a kind of sacrosanct space uh, to freely exchange ideas and change their minds and grow and converge on the truth. It's only if you believe in that enlightenment idea about the value of discourse that you can see a point for defending and preserving those sacrosanct spaces. And if you don't believe in that, and I do think that uh, the agenda, which Frank said that some of the attacks on free speech don't seem to be accompanied by an agenda, I think the agenda, the postmodernist agenda, is to dismantle the West. It's a challenge to the Enlightenment tradition, a challenge to the very idea that there can be a free exchange of ideas and, and, and just the substitution of this kind of Hobbesian battleground in which these different uh, groups vying for power are just battling it out. I okay. think it's an attack on the Enlightenment right, 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 yeah. dismantling civilization. Real, okay, thank uh, you. Nick, yes, yeah, Nick. Real, real quickly, one, I think the postmodernist agenda, uh, rightly understood, postmodernism as defined by Jean-Francois Lyotard is uh, incredulity toward meta-narratives, and I think that's a better way of understanding. I, I don't understand the British antipathy to uh, postmodernism, I think, as it's properly understood, and it actually implies a need for more voices because we recognize that no system of knowledge or comprehension or, uh, or experience in the world really gets at things. And in a liberal order, I think a liberal order is inherently postmodern because it begins by acknowledging that none of us has complete access to knowledge or truth and that we only pr uh, gain progress by actually interacting and talking among each other. To me, I see it as fundamental to the need for free speech, which brings me to the question about do uh, kind of un not, uh, uh, historically unrepresented viewpoints as well as genders, identities, whatever races you want to call it, do they deserve special microphones? Perhaps not a dedicated microphone, but for fuck's sake, it is so boring. I mean, if you're in the United States and, you know, with uh, Fox News, where it's run by Rupert Murdoch and then it was uh, created by Roger Ailes and then its main guy was Bill O'Reilly, there is not a lot of anything there except a lot of loose skin and apparently Viagra floating around throughout the system. Um, I know just as a news consumer and as, as a sentient human being, I want different viewpoints represented. And oftentimes, women do have different experiences than blacks, than whites, whites who are poor rather than rich, et cetera. So I don't, but the, the question then is, where is this we? And I think that's incumbent upon us. And if we want to talk about not just saying, oh, well, you know what, we're right and anybody who's against us is wrong, we need to build the spaces and the arenas where we, have the, we model the conversation and the free speech that we think should be happening. I actually think that is happening because of technology, because of places like Google and Facebook, which are trying to control the conversations but are failing to, and mostly what we're left with are more arenas for actual free speech and diversity of viewpoint and opinion. And that's what we need to be focusing on, not a bunch of petulant little brats. Okay. Uh, um, uh, yeah, so, I mean, Frank, are you just over-focusing on a group, petulant group of little brats? You know what I mean? Like, is it too much focusing on this campus stuff? But anyway, anyway anything else? Well, I mean, little brats are the story of my life, so I'm, I'm not going to break free from that. But I, I do think there is a, a problem with some of the comments that we made, because the way that I look at it is that... Um, you cannot create pluralism artificially. You cannot create 
a world where everybody's got equal access to a phone. You, you know, we, I, I too would often want to hear different kind of voices, and in particular, more of my voice in, in terms of the public discussion. I, I feel very frustrated that you, know, you get this predictable comment on today's program on Newsnight, and you already know what's going to happen. That's very, very frustrating. But the lesson of history is, is that when people want to express themselves, when they want to give voice to their particular oppression or particular uh, sort of uh, way of life, then they'll find a way of doing it. They'll struggle and they will make sure that their voice is heard. And that's, that's what happened throughout history. And it seems to me that that organic process of people's uh, you know, will to do something, to make themselves heard, is not something that you or I, anybody can second guess. And, and, and that organic process cannot be short-circuited in a paternalistic fashion by here's your microphone, here's your voice and everything else. That simply, I think, is, is, is a wrong way of going about it. I think what, what is important is to create a climate of, of public discussion and public debate where people feel that it's their responsibility as citizens to be heard, where people actually want to say something uh, regardless of the circumstances that they're faced. And I think the one point that Nick said is really, really true is that we now have the technology and we now have the institutional possibilities of having a much more heterogeneous public space than ever before. And that's, that's one of the positive developments uh, that has occurred. I want to say one little Great. thing, very small thing, which hasn't been raised at all, but something I've been feeling really strongly about, which is because free speech is so important and because the issue of censorship is so important, it's important that we don't actually discover censorship where it doesn't really exist. And we, we don't discover attacks on free speech where it doesn't exist. And I've noticed there's a lot of American videos that I've been seeing where basically what you have is a, a, a meeting at a university and you have three people with a placard you know, chanting white privilege and the meeting is cancelled. You know, and oh, we've been censored. Whereas if I'd been there, I would just stay there and told them to FO. You know, so I'm going to be here. I have my right to speak. And actually heckling is not a form of censorship. Making noises at a meeting is part and parcel of the democratic process. And I do think there's a danger that so-called free speech warriors are actually real pussies when it comes to these kinds of issues instead of standing up and making sure that they're heard. I just, I just wanted to um, pick up on this thing about you know, Facebook and Google and you know, great optimism that, that uh, we can hear more voices than we ever have before. I agree that the internet has provided a great potentially dem dem start again. Democratizing. democratizing, thank you, space. However, I do think we are often not having conversations. We're just making statements on these platforms. And I think one of the things that we do need to think about um, more carefully in a lot of these discussions isn't simply, have I got the right to speak? Yes, that's the most important and fundamental, have I got the freedom to speak? But also, how can I listen? How are we having conversation and discussion? Because we're talking about exchange of ideas, not simply the freedom to shout in a corner at whatever you like, but also the freedom to listen and to potentially change your mind. And we need to find better structures, I think, in order to do that. Okay, thanks. Uh, Trevor. I just uh, endorse what Jodie's just said. You know, let's think about how we can inject a little bit of generosity into some of these conversations rather than... I mean, I, I respect my fellow panel panellists, but I don't really think it's really helpful to start describing people as brats. I mean... That's not how they think of themselves. And if we want to have a dialogue with them, that doesn't seem to me like a place to start. Just in relation to the questions that have been raised, um, on the South African thing, to be frank, I don't think we need to invent, uh, or we don't need to look 
to Russian intervention to explain what happened in South Africa. The South African government was doing fine in messing up the, uh, the attempt to deal with AIDS all by itself. I don't think we need to worry about anything else. Uh, let's deal with what Zuma did before we think about the other stuff. And on the more general point, a specific question you asked about the microphones. Look, there's a, there's a danger of making this conversation massively abstract. And my, the thing that I think is a real risk here is having a conversation which is actually about nothing. I mean, it's really about nothing except that what somebody's shouting about. What is more practical, and I'll give you a very simple example. I'm on the board of a company um, where we meet each month and uh, I come home and I um, explain to my wife what we've done today. And after several months, she mentioned to me, who's sitting around the table? And I said, well, there's me, no, no, no. And she said, yeah, there's you, there's an Asian guy, there's two white guys, and there's some, somebody, uh, an Italian guy, two English white guys, an Italian guy. Anything missing? <laughs> and... Um, it's, I won't say it hadn't occurred to me, but it's not occurred to me, frankly, that it would affect the quality of our discussion. I then mentioned this to our CEO, who basically said, this is an interesting thing, he said, we're not going to have another board meeting until there's a woman at the table. We didn't. We now do have at least one woman at the table, and I hope there'll be more. The point I'm making here is that I hear all this conversation, but I need to tell you that the private sector is way ahead of you on the practicalities of all, all of this. While universities are getting themselves all wrapped up in meta-debates about things that do not matter, the real world is solving these problems. And it would be good if there were some empiricism injected into this conversation. Okay, thank you. Um, so I, I, I've got, I've got uh, the, somebody's got the microphone, yeah? Um, why do you think there has been a rise of identity politics and why is it so popular among the younger generation? Is it because we've been taught it in schools or where does it come from? Um, I just wanted to ask a question about, I guess, the role of the courts in all this. So, for example, I don't know if you're following the case of Felix Ngole, which he's a, he's a master's student at the University of Sheffield. And the High Court has just ruled that um, opinions he basically put on Facebook means that well, the University of Sheffield barred him from his course because of opinions he published on Facebook, and the High Court supported this ruling, I guess, in support of the idea that someone, he was besmirching the, the name of Sheffield in what he'd said on Facebook, which was a private realm, effectively. Um, so I was wondering, like, what, firstly, what's the role of the courts? And secondly, um, what's the role of the employer versus the employee? Because a lot of you have a lot of space to say what you want, but I guess if there's a fear that you're going to get sacked from your job, etc. <coughs> Where's the place of representing the employer? Thank you. Um, just a quick question, whether, whether identity is the right word for all of this, really, identity politics. Because um, in, you, you might see an identity as um, like uh, you see yourself as a gay man or a black person. Uh, you might go on a pride demo to celebrate this gayness or whatever. Um, you might maybe compete for Arts Council funding so there might be competition amongst identities. But most of the examples that have been given, most of the things that are coming from the platform, are some kind of victim identity, which doesn't seem to, although it presents itself as a black identity or whatever, it's kind of a, a see my wound, uh, hear, me, you know, hear me cry, uh, a declaration of, of um, being attacked. And because of that, it seems to me like it's never-ending. There isn't any way that that can end. 
you, you, you look for uh, statues, you look for hi through history, but then you go to the microaggressions, and th there is no satisfaction. It's not a campaign to win something, because the whole thing itself is premised on being a victim, uh, and that's, that is the identity. Can you hear me? Yeah. yeah. Um, I've been so free with my speech, I've got no voice left. Um, but um, I just wanted to say, why is it more important to have a woman on a CEO board than that, to have people who just have different opinions? And what does a woman bring that um, men don't? But the question I was going to ask was, um, has speech become more offensive? As somebody who voted Brexit, I've been called the C word quite a few times um, recently. And it seems to me that... Um, uh, people are more offended by ideas, but are quite happy to be more offensive in the, the way that they speak to you. Okay, thank you. Interesting. Okay, yes. I'm just quite bored of this construction of what campuses are like. I think you construct and represent students to suit your argument, and you inflate and exaggerate it and don't really reflect the reality. I don't think you're willing to engage with students that um, might support safe space policies. Instead, you call them pussies, you tell them to fuck off, you call them brats. And I think what happens is that your definition of what's going on and the conversations I actually see on campus are really, really different things. I think what you think of as a space safe is really different to what people I know on LGBT committees think of safe space. I think you think that universities are just all massive echo chambers when actually students generally aren't that in support of safe space, generally aren't that in support of no platforming. And we have really, really long discussions amongst ourselves ourselves about what do we want speech on campus to look like, what do we want to do um, and yeah I just kind of like how much do you actually engage with what students want and I accept that they're probably not, a lot of them aren't that happy to maybe engage with you um, and I think there just needs to be more engagement on both sides to get a more accurate expression of what's really going on um, I think I think that's, I think that's a, 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 a very good question Although a kind of accusation you at a, at a panel might be a bit unfair, but um, or there's different people here. Um, but I think I think that is I think one of the things. I mean, I spend a lot of time on university campuses engaging with people when they're not banning me, but um, uh, generally. Um, but I am gen genuinely interested, and I do think there is a danger of caricaturing each other on this. I, I, I understand that, but I because I spend a lot of time engaging with this. I agree with Nick entirely that, you know, the kind of Milo Yiannopoulos, you know, kind of troll fest or that kind of caricature of safe spaces and then kind of trying to wind it up has done nobody any favours. But it is also true that safe space uh, advocates, for example, write a lot and have policies which I read and then write against. And then I'm told that because I don't agree with them, that therefore I'm unsympathetic. I just don't agree with them. There's a difference. You know, saying you don't, you're caricaturing students because you don't agree with them, that's not fair either, right? If you have a policy, you need to be able to make it available, people read it, and then argue back. When I've done that, I've been told that then I'm being offensive and that I've got no sensitivity to young people's particular problems. And I think that's not the way to deal with it. So I think both sides need to have an argument about some of these things. That's what I'd say. Caricatures on all sides, I get. But I don't think it's just one-sided, this panel versus. Um, I'm not a white apologist because I don't believe in the decolonisation of the curriculum. That's broadly it. I'm not a racist because I don't agree with no platform policies. And being called it doesn't help either. So let's... But I think what you've said got a big clap. That means lots of people agree with you. So if there's lots of people who want to come in and, and pile in. Let's have a go. Right. Who's got the microphone now? Honestly, I was a bit alarmed seeing that 
both the panel and the audience seem to be speaking in a single voice till now. Uh, and, and gladly I have something to rebut, first of all to the first speaker. In all, uh, in all politeness, sir, you, you made a very good, uh, very good rhetoric, but the example you gave about students having drugs and also being subjected to safe spaces, I, I didn't find them linking together. Secondly, uh, sir, you spoke about how uh, it's more important to focus on economic issues and empowerment in that sense. But my question to you is, is it really wrong to be sympathetic? Is it really wrong to be empathetic? Have we arrived in a situation where we are weighing physical and economic good as more powerful, as more desirable, rather than your spiritual and mental understanding? When, when John Mill wrote about it, probably the mental sphere wasn't that well understood, but today we know that ideas and such kind of explosive thoughts do have the potential to cause real mental harm. So, I, are you not degrading, are you not, are you not reducing the importance of these ideas compared to the economic and physical world? Okay, thank you. So I'd just like to uh, refer to Nick's um, defense of post-modernism, post sorry. Um, uh, it, there, have to be, there has to be objective uh, uh, standards and reality um, if you're going to have free speech. So there, we know there are certain things that are right and wrong. We, we, we know there are facts and we know that there are lies. Uh, the trouble with post-modernism um, is that it's a subjectivist uh, discourse um, which is a, effectively a power play and therefore a reflection of the individuals concerned and then it becomes a manifestation of the ego, and then this is why you get snowflakery and the people who are ultra-sensitive, because the argument is, is, is totally uh, personalised, um, and that is, uh, I think, the problem with it. Okay, and, uh, sorry, sorry, uh, got to it, stop it, there. It's got a misunderstanding no. of free speech, basically. Yeah, okay, thank you. Sorry to be brutal and cut people off, but it's just to get as many people in as possible. So, who's now got the microphone? Yes, yes, you stand up. Um, yes. So, I... Rather than piling in on students, I wanted to talk about, um, yes, we can hear more voices thanks to social media now, but actually some of those voices are more protected than others. Um, and I would like to ask you guys on the panel about, say, the protection of Trump on Twitter versus um, people having to hand over their phones in immigration so that their Facebook accounts can be checked to see whether they've said something against someone that they disagree with. So I just think that that's a more important thing to be talking about rather than piling on on students who have... a. Uh, you know, it's within themselves to be developing their identities when they're at universities. So, yeah, I'd like to hear your opinion on that. I, I was really interested in uh, what Frank said about the cultural changes. I've worked in primary education throughout that period, and we're now doing something in schools where we are supposed to be teaching children to be resilient, which I think is a bit of a backlash to the whole pupil voice and the snowflake uh, thing. But I was at a debate yesterday about loneliness, and we talked about can you teach children to be resilient, or should you just be... Um, teaching them how to be a human being. And I think that actually goes to the core of what we're talking about here. Thank you. Yeah. Okay, so I want to just... Uh, I think there is a danger of the caricaturing of some of the madder forms of censorship on campus, um, although they are important. I think what's more interesting as well, though, is the reality of everyday relationships between academics and students on campus where overt ideas of censoring free speech don't appear day to day, but slowly, slowly, there is a growing climate, particularly on the part of academics, about asking robust questions in class, about being critical of students' ideas or their work, 
on the grounds that it might cause offence, particularly to so-called disadvantaged groups. So the, these ideas start to percolate down into the everyday life of the university. And just very quickly, because I come from the University of Sheffield, it was a student complaint about the social work student who posted comments from the Bible against homosexuality that led to the university excluding him from the course. Uh, so that was the where ideas about what's offensive goes from student to student and has resulted in him being excluded. Uh, I just want to get back to this issue of lived experience because this is the constant go-to trope. Uh, and also the hurt feelings. And I think there's a reason for that. Um, these two claims uh, are totally subjective, and it leads to complete relativism. So if you tell me that you're really bored right now, or that you've got a headache, there's nothing I can say to contradict you. You're right. End of. So the reason for grounding the argument always in experience is that it gives the claimants perverse authority. And we can, however, we can press the claimant because an experience is always an experience of something. So if you say you're having an experience of God telling you that you have to murder prostitutes, as the Yorkshire Ripper did, well, now you're putting that into a propositional form that can be tested against objective evidence. So if someone says, I'm experiencing racism right now, uh, we have to then know what racism is. We need a working definition. Now, at the moment, it means everything. <laughs> and because racism means everything, it actually means nothing. And this leads to the absurd situation where this is the social secretary, Desiree Rogers, gushing in an interview with the Wall Street Journal. She says, we have the best brand on earth, the Obama brand. Our possibilities are endless. And likewise, Advertising Age says, the brand, Obama, is big enough to be anything to anyone. It's so vague and amorphous that it can be used for any kind of advocacy. Um, you were talking at the very beginning about the conflation of um, true harm and moral offense. Um, and I was wondering, where do you draw the line between those two? Because I think we can all agree that there are some speech acts which cause true harm. Um, the most famous example being the angry mob in front of the corn cob dealer. Um, so where would you say does true harm end and moral offence begin, and who is allowed to draw that line? So that's a million-dollar question, for a start off. Um, um, I, I, I can barely do this, but I, but I can just about get a couple of people at the back row in, and I'm sorry, everyone, I can't. Is this not a sign of the decadence of the West and how far we've slipped that it feels quite absurd that this conversation even is happening. Uh, I think it's a question of proximity. If anyone has ever lived in a state where speech is oppressed, they're well aware of the realities. I just I feel there's a lack of pragmatism. There are far more important things that we could be discussing rather than safe spaces. And okay, okay. Uh, uh, thank you. That's a that's that one then. Right. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, right. Uh, Last two at the back, yeah, then I have to quick, come back to Quick the question for Frank. This is just when I'm talking to my students about things like respecting diversity and difference and trying to discuss this at the level of ideas and politics, it feels to me that they think that it's a matter of politeness and etiquette and being a decent person. And that seems to be a very different discussion to me. So I'm wondering if the etiquette issue 
is something to explore. Just trying to unpick the three, three points that Frank made at the beginning about the kind of cultural changes. So just the last one. I think the way you explain it is really useful because it explains the kind of hysterical nature of some of these dis discussions that people, when you criticise their politics or you criticise their ideas on race or, or gender, they take it so personally. But in a sense, you, you present a kind of pessimistic view. So what is the way through that? If people believe it so much when you criticise their ideas, how do you get into that? Because it seems to me when you see this in front of you, it's a very difficult thing because people take it to heart so much. There seems to be the gap to get in there seems to be so small. Can I, can I uh, uh, just act, while the panel just kind of work out what their, you know, their kind of final thoughts? I mean, I think, I think that it's just, it's just worth saying that um, well, well, there's a couple of things that I wanted to say. I mean, one of the reasons why I wanted, uh, I was, was very keen for Trevor to come, was because we're in a discussion that we were both at. But one of the things that happens is, is that there's this interchangeability about what, for example, we might mean by racism. And, you know, I, I, I feel passionately about racism um, and fighting it. But some things that get described as racism in the debates that I have, not just on campus, by the way. God, if only it were confined to campus, then I'd be, it'd be different. Some things that get described as racism to me to kind of stop me interrogating things or, or what have you, um, I, I consider it to be trivial. But of course, that seems like then I'm insulting people by saying, but you know, I'm thinking, no, God, if you knew what racism was, but then it's like, you know. So I think that there's, but lots of things get thrown in the pot. But the other thing that happens, and this is one of the things which I also talked to Trevor about as well when we met, is that, you know, we haven't discussed it here, but in terms of identity, um, there's been a number of times, and I'm going to be chairing a panel afterwards, where I've wanted to, and I think it's important to discuss, for example, the rise of radical uh, uh, um, uh, Islam in this country. And when I've tried to discuss that in relation to, I, I hardly need to remind people that there's been the odd terrorist attack and there's all sorts of other, it's not just that. Um, I've been told that I am insulting Muslims and I'm being Islamophobic, right? So these things have real consequences and that therefore I'm accused of being a racist. So this thing about identity and free speech, and people can say, well, isn't there more important things to talk about than students? This is the heart of politics at the moment, and how you conduct politics is actually curtailed by some things which might look like mad things when they're on campus over there, but actually stop people being involved in politics, serious politics, all the things that we've been saying we want to do something about. You, in order to be political, you have to have open and free discussion. And if you can't, because you're constantly watching what you say or being closed down, that seems to me to be problematic. So just in the context of what this is about, that's what this is session is about. <coughs> and I think that does not mean that we should make, you know, fun of students who are into, who, who argue for safe spaces, although I do think that they're wrong. I think that's part and parcel of an important discussion about how we view, how we deal with speech and politics. So um, anyway, okay, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to uh, uh, sort of just whiz through uh, for people to just kind of give us their final thoughts. And 
Um, I'm, I'll do it in, in reverse order. So, Nick, just your kind of final thought on this. We've still got several sessions of the festival left where these issues will come up again. But anyway, for you, Yeah, Nick. I uh, think, you know, one of the questions that was raised just a second ago that is really important and that we didn't touch on is where did identity politics come from in its current form? Uh, in America, at the very least, there has always been a victim culture. Uh, Nathaniel Hawthorne, arguably, uh, you know, our most famous and accomplished writer was bitching and moaning about the damned mob of scribbling women when he was writing because they sold more books than he did. Um, the Puritans certainly never felt uh, you know, anything other than victimized by history and by the Indians and by everybody around, them. the pilgrims rather in the US, I realize a uh, different context. Um, in the current context, what happened is there were affirmative action programs that were very rigid and very quota-based that came into being in the late 60s and early 70s particularly to help blacks and to a lesser degree women uh, to overcome real and, and distinct uh, prejudice that had been in place for uh, centuries, essentially. I mean, most, most better colleges in America were not even co-educational until about 1970. Um, and those programs stayed in place long after the first uh, kind of two or three orders of serious uh, exclusion had been addressed. So there's this residue of power that is still there to reward an ever-growing number of identities. Um, and I think people who run those programs and people who might see themselves benefit from those programs continue to operate them as if it's still uh, 1955 in Mississippi, even in Cambridge, Massachusetts. That's, that's part of the problem. And that has now flipped to a point where white identity politics is a huge thing. Uh, and you have the alt-right bitching and moaning about being excluded because there isn't enough Nazi representation in higher education. Um, so that, that's part of it. And then all I want to say is I think that uh, all of the panelists in a different way have, you know, what we need is a culture of debate and discussion and conversation, not merely an ability to, uh, you know, speak in a park where everybody's on their own soapbox and, and spouting their own version of insanity. And that, I think the only solution to that ultimately and to grow that culture is to model it in your own work and in your own places and to build those marketplaces of ideas, those fora, you know, that would allow that. And, and part of what I do at Reason and we try and do is to have good faith arguments where we're not misrepresenting uh, the people that we disagree with, whether we're engaging the best arguments that we disagree with and then working through there. Uh, but I think that's, that's the way forward ultimately. <clears throat> yeah, uh, I really disagree with the guy in the back who said that free speech is not that important. And quite a few people had said it's a really mundane, trivial matter. There are all these you know, earth-shaking, important issues around the world. And isn't it really pathetic that there's a panel here you know, discussing this really silly subject? I, I think that that attitude is the attitude that are, prevails on campuses. Because I think you're absolutely right, the person over there, that most students aren't interested in any of these issues, that's absolutely right. But the problem is, is that when attacks on free speech are waged, most students look the other way, they look at their shoelaces, and they say, oh, there's just a, a small minority of people that are making these points. It's not me, it's not our lives, you know, so when we not like them. And I think one of the tragedic, tragedies is that people are just kind of looking in a different directions. And, you know, the way that I look at it is that we live in a world where you begin, you begin by saying that free speech it's not that important on a Monday. By Tuesday, what you say, well, actually, ideas are not that important either. 
I mean, who cares? What's the big deal about ideas? You know, sort of what's, how important that is. By the time you get to Wednesday or Thursday, intellectual exploration and experimentation are also seen as an optional extra because there's all these really important things going on in the world which are so much more important than people being able to voice their opinions and their expression. And what this Philistine attitude actually means is that the foundation of all of our freedoms in every domain of social experience, which is that of free speech, is kind of quietly negotiated away, so casually that we don't even notice. It's not that important. And we forget the fact that without free speech, there cannot be public life. We cannot have a, a, a communicate with each other. There cannot be any of the other freedoms because free speech is both logically and chronologically prior to all of our other freedoms. So as far as I'm concerned, there is nothing more important than this. And it's not my personal ho hobby or my personal kind of perversion that I think this is important. It's what the experience of human history has demonstrated to us throughout the centuries. Okay, thank you. I'm definitely not going to top that. Um, what I think has been interesting, though, is listening to all the questions, is what different people have heard from this discussion. So some of you have heard that the discussion has been nothing but calling students brats and discussion about safe spaces. That's certainly not been the experience for me sitting on this panel. Others have heard that it's been about representation and diversity and, and other voices. And to me, that says that what we say... And what other people hear depends very much, not just on um, our ability to express ourselves, but our willingness to really listen properly and listen beyond our own experiences and our own, own viewpoints to the viewpoints of other people. And if you want something really practical to do to enable you to do this, when you leave here, go to the Index on Censorship booth, pick up a copy of our fantastic magazine, which is available to you at a reduced price today of just £5, and read some stories of people who are not based here, whose viewpoints are not those of people in universities debating safe spaces. They're people based in Bahrain, Azerbaijan, China, Ecuador, and read some different things that take you out of your own experience. Great. Trevor, top that. <laughs> oh, I'm not even going to try. Um, can I just respond to the quick, very, very fair question? She's gone now, actually. Uh, who asked uh, about why a woman? Well, the it's a really good challenge. I think the answer for me is very simple. We don't want to paint by numbers. Just having different kinds of people in a room isn't uh, that important in itself, except it's an indicator. For us, having this drawn to our attention was a reminder that we hadn't really been thinking about whether we had the right number of voices, question you raised, Jodie, the right kinds of voices. And the truth is that um, whatever one thinks in theory, identity does matter. I will never have the experience of being a woman. I just will never know what it is like. Uh, I know that it is different, um, and it seems to me that when we are making decisions about uh, small or large things, Sharing different experiences helps us make better decisions. So it seems to be very straightforward. Uh, the second thing I just wanted... Uh, someone asked about, you know, economics versus empathy and all that stuff. Well, you know, I, I sort of... There's a part of me that would love to go along with that. But let me... 
tell you, being unemployed and homeless and poor is a bigger proximate danger to somebody's mental health than somebody not being nice to them. Simple and straightforward. Um, and on the more general point, um, you know, lots of things that one could say about discussion. I, I'll just make two quick points. We do not, should not dismiss the difference of identity out of hand. I know it's now becoming fashionable to say, you know, we're all the same under the skin and all the rest of it. It just isn't true. It just isn't true. You know, there are things that are true about me that will never be true about the majority of people in this room. For example, uh, my family has sickle cell. Uh, now, this is just a medical condition. Oh, it's just a thing that you fix. Actually, it isn't a thing you fix. I have a nephew who has never been able to swim with his children because of his condition. It's just a very different experience. And I'm sure there are other people who will have similar kinds of experience. The point is, we are different. The question is, how do we understand and negotiate those differences? That's a real task that we're facing today. And the question that I think is still, in a way, unresolved, and it's not just about campuses, it's more widely that it's come to the fore, uh, fore there, is how do you deal with a setting of social norms. Now, I think what's happening in campus has become, turned into a species of bullying. That is to say that you find different ways of forcing other people to accept your view, either by saying, you know, you're in charge, or you're, if, if, you do, if people don't agree with you, they're killing you or making you hurt or whatever it is. I think we've got to do better than that. Uh, it seems to me the person who spoke about resilience is absolutely onto something here. I would rather focus on how we get people into a place where they feel more capable of having arguments than thinking about how we stop other people expressing what they are and what they feel. The point is, though, that, and I referred to the death of Stalin, I, do, you know, I was a bit skeptical before I went to see it, but actually, I think it taught me something really interesting. I saw it last night. It reminded me of something really, really interesting that the change happens very slowly without anybody noticing. That the things that become too difficult or too much of a pain or will cost you, you know, some social interaction or will be a price to your family. You know, I've, my daughter's in the audience. You grew up going back to school and having people say, do you know what your father said last night? For Christ's sake. You know, these things creep up on you and change without your knowing about it. So the person who said about the informal censorship, I think is onto something. The more we bring these things out and the more we ventilate them, the more we're able to change them. So it's not just a thing about finally, finally. stopping or not stopping people, but we have to start thinking more creatively about how we negotiate and understand difference. And we don't do that, by the way, by telling everybody who doesn't agree with us that they're a moral deficient. Okay, thank you. Right, finally. Um, yeah, I, I think some of my fellow... Right, okay, you've got sorry. to speak into the microphone and you've got to do it quickly. Some of my fellow panellists, some people in the audience, I think, are being a little bit glib about the danger posed by the postmodernist intersectionality cult. I don't think it's just, I think you're guilty of seeing it through the lens of your liberal enlightenment values, Nick. It's not just, it's not just different groups wanting their voice to be heard in a pluralistic, capitalist, 
world, those groups, in many cases, <coughs> want to overthrow that pluralist, capitalist world. They're not interested in dialogue. They're interested in conflict. Um, when one of the protesters um, uh, at, uh, against uh, Brett Weinstein uh, on the Evergreen campus, an evolutionary biologist who refused to participate in a day of absence whereby all the non-white faculty members were supposed to remove themselves from the university for one day. When he refused to participate, he became subject to a lot of very aggressive protests. And when he tried to engage the protesters in dialogue, they responded by saying that they weren't interested in reason, logic, dialectic. Those were the tools of white male privilege. And I think it's, I think it's, it's, a, we're, it, we're, it's a danger to underestimate the strength of this cult. It has the quality on American campuses, and in some cases in British campuses too, of a new evangelical, almost quasi Christian religion. People are expected to confess their white privilege as though confessing a sin and then uh, recant. Um, uh, it, the, the, the expression woke is a dead giveaway. You know, I was blind, but thank the Lord, hallelujah, now I can see. It's it, the, the privileging of lived experience, which a lot okay. of people have talked about um, uh, over reason and logic, um, is a characteristic of this, this anti-modern anti-enlightenment cult. And it isn't just confined to campuses. It is finding its way into our hate laws, for instance. Um, uh, it's, finding our way, it's finding its way into universities like Sheffield and the persecution of people who challenge that particular cult. Uh, it's finding its way, one, final, one woman mentioned, sentence. into the prevalence of fake news, whether generated from the left or the right or by Russian troll farms. And I think it is genuinely dangerous. We shouldn't be glib about it. And if we want to defend free speech and the enlightenment values underpinning free speech, we need to engage directly with the postmodernist cult and challenge it. Thank you very much indeed.